Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to that glorious day. The day when the trumpet sounds and Christ descends as the, the same way that he had gone up. Lord, while we are still here, we suffer with sin, we suffer with sorrow, we suffer with grief. Some of the sufferings are caused by our own sin and some are caused by sin of a fallen world. Lord, I ask that we would be people that see our sin, see the effects of our sin on others, on our families, in our own hearts, in our love for you. Lord, I know how damaging Adultery can be in a relationship. And yet, Lord, we are the same way toward you. The husband expecting his wife to be faithful and the wife expecting her husband to be faithful. A faithful God expecting his people to be faithful. But Lord, we are so often unfaithful. Lord, would you forgive our unfaithfulness our misguided devotion to things and to pleasures, to temporary pursuits that will all burn up. Lord, may our hearts be devoted to you and to you alone. May we seek you first, seek your kingdom, be devoted to prayer, be devoted to your word, be devoted to the good news. Lord, as we look today at a difficult and often uncomfortable topic, Lord, we pray that you would bring conviction where it's needed. Lord, what a, a dangerous sin this is. I pray that nobody walks out of here hiding their shame, hiding their sin, and hiding their guilt. Lord, but more than that, they would desire to be repentant before you. That they would desire to be healed, to be loved, to be restored. Lord, in that we know that you are the God who heals. Lord, you are the God who restores. You sent Christ that he might bear our sin, including this sin, that we might not die in our sin. And yet that means Christ hangs on the cross to die on our behalf for our sin. May that be the reality in our lives, that our sin held Christ upon the cross. That the mob yelled, crucify him. And so did my sin. May we not take that for granted. May we not take that lightly, but recognize the full cost to Christ for our sin, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is a difficult topic. As I was thinking about you this week, 
I know that for many people, this topic, let me read Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. In our church, there are many who have transgressed in this way. There are many whose spouses have transgressed in this way. And it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard to be on either end of that. Having been adulterous, having a spouse that was adulterous. So I want to look at this today and I want to be clear that, that we condemn the sin. That sexual sin is a sin unlike most other sin that destroys families, destroys relationships. But there's not only condemnation, because there's also hope. There's also hope that sinners can be restored, that the dead can be brought back to life. So I want to balance those two things, that the sin we must take seriously, and the hope and the repentance and the restoration of relationships we must also take seriously. This past year, I had a little skin cancer on my arm. So I went to the dermatologist, and the dermatologist said, yeah, we have to remove it. So they removed it and sent it to a lab to make sure they got it all. If all of it didn't come out, there would be future problems. And so I asked the dermatologist afterwards, what would happen if I didn't notice or I didn't get it removed? And he said, well, it would grow and spread and eventually it would kill you. Sexual sin that is not dealt with grows and it spreads and it eventually kills. And I know today there are people sitting here that have considered sexual sin. They've gone down that road in their minds with someone, somehow, specifically. They've considered the options. They've considered what it might do to their families. I would beg you to turn back. There are others here that have just gone headlong into sexual sin knowing the destruction that it might bring, but caring not about that, caring for personal satisfaction. There are others who are recovering from sexual sin. It's been a long, hard road. You've been forgiven, or you've forgiven someone, 
and it's a process. Relationships have still been hurt, but you're moving in the right direction. And I know some of you, thankfully, have not dealt with sexual sin. That hasn't been a problem in your relationships, in your life. And for those people, I just want this to be a reminder, a warning of what sexual sin does in marriages and in the lives of individuals. Let's look at verse 27 and 28 again. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, again, Jesus goes back into the law to bring out the full meaning of it. That's the Beatitudes. That's the Sermon on the Mount as he goes in and says, you have this narrow view of what the law says. The law says, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, take that idea and expand it because anyone who has looked lustfully, not actually done anything except for what was done in the heart, that person has already sinned. What Jesus is teaching is it's not only the outward action like we saw with the Pharisees. It's not the outward action that causes the sin, but it's what happens in the heart. It's what happens through the eyes. It's what happens in the mind. Sexual sin is in the heart. That's where it begins. In this passage, Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, you can remove the him and the her and the man and the woman and just say, if anyone looks lustfully, because man or woman, sin starts in the heart. Men and women are both sinful, and that sin begins in the heart. And notice that Jesus here says that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already, that person that looks lustfully has already violated the law. Looking lustfully has already sinned. Looking lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. But there also is a time that a man can look at a woman and not be lustful. A woman can look at a man and not be lustful. The heart is what bears witness to whether that is a lustful look or not. And only that person knows whether that look is lustful or not. In 2 Samuel 11, is a story of David, the king of Israel. David was a good king for most of his reign. At this time in the spring, the kings go to war. The ground has dried. They can march across dry ground, and they would go and fight other kings. David, a king, should have been out to war. But on this warm spring night, David wakes and goes up to the roof and he paces around on the roof. David's commander, Joab, had gone and attacked an enemy city. Joab had laid siege against this city and was looking to conquer this city. This should be David's victory, but David is home in the palace while his men are out fighting his war. And while Joab is laying siege against the city, Satan is laying siege against David. 
And as David walks upon the roof, he looks down into a courtyard. And by the light of the moon, he sees a backyard. And he sees a woman that the Bible describes as very beautiful. And it's easy to stop right here in the story and say, this is where David's sin begins. But it's not. See, David had been planting the seeds of sexual sin for many years. God had given David a wife, but she was not enough. So David took another, and another, and another. And the Bible lists by name eight of David's wives, and then says, and he took more. Like this moment, David has been giving in to his sexual desires for many years. And so when he sees this woman bathing in her own private courtyard, he sends his servant to say, go and find out who she is. The servant returns to David and says, that woman's name is Bathsheba. And that's a name that David instantly recognizes. He knows Bathsheba because her grandfather is one of David's most trusted advisors. Her father is one of David's 30 mighty warriors. Listed by name in the Bible are these 30 men who are David's best warriors. They're loyal to him. They're excellent fighters. And her dad is one of them. And David also knows that her husband is one of them. Three of the people closest to David are related to Bathsheba. Beyond that, she's married. She's off limits to David because she has a husband who is living. So David sends for Bathsheba, tells her to come to the king's palace, where the king should not be, but he is. And David's downward spiral into sexual sin continues from here. Having an affair is a sin against God. Having an affair is a sin against one's spouse. And having an affair is a sin against, in this case, Bathsheba's husband. Taking your friend's wife is depraved. Taking your friend's wife while he is on the battlefield, while he is your friend, while he is fighting your war that you're supposed to be fighting, while he trusts you, is about as low as it gets. David's desire for sexual satisfaction knows no limits. And there's nothing David won't do seeking his own pleasure. There's nothing David won't do to try to satisfy his own sexual sin. You see, we must each day, each moment, 
decide what will we desire? What will we seek? Deuteronomy says, See today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. Life and prosperity, death and adversity. Do we desire life and prosperity? Do we desire death and adversity? It's going to be asked this way. Do we submit to God and what he requires of us? Or do we hide our sin in secret? See, sexual fantasies lead to sexual sins. David's actions were followed by his fantasies. He first, with a longing look, saw Bathsheba and then followed his eyes. Holiness and sin are divided. Life and death, prosperity and adversity, sexual purity, sexual promiscuity, faithfulness and betrayal, devotion or loyalty, marital fidelity or marital infidelity. Set before us our life and death. But David continues digging deeper into his depravity. In the same way that a couple inches of dirt can hide a landmine, a couple of seconds of a longing look, a couple extra seconds of thoughts about what David saw, a couple minutes of daydreaming about what might be, and David's life blows up in his face. From here on, David's life is forever changed. When Bathsheba arrives at the palace, David is intimate with her, and she becomes pregnant. And David does what unrepentant people do. What unrepentant people always do is try to hide their sin. The unrepentant person says, I can fix this on my own. It'll be different, but it never is. It's always the same. There's always more and more and more. The repentant person says, forgive me, I've sinned, and seeks to make amends and tries to make it right. It still has blown up. The person is trying through the grace of God, to be repentant, asking for forgiveness. This is not David. David is unrepentant. He tries to hide his sin. And every failed attempt leads David deeper and deeper into his own darkness. Bathsheba's pregnant, and David can't hide that. So the answer is to kill her husband. Second Samuel 12 tells the rest of the story. 
It is one of the saddest chapters in all of the Bible to see David's sin on display right before him, to see the problems that came after his longing looks, his sexual desires, his sinful fantasies, and then indirectly or directly, his life will not be the same. Because of Bathsheba's pregnancy, because of David's sin, he murders a man. His son, dead. His daughter, raped by his son. Another son murdered. A third son starts a civil war against him. Another son leads God's people so deep into idolatry that God says that he is angry at him. David's sin tore through his family like a genetic cancer that he passed down from generation to generation. But here's the problem. The problem is that no matter what David received, he was never going to be content. David was never going to be content with Bathsheba. He saw her and wanted her, but she was not the answer because David did not want Bathsheba. He wanted all of the Bathshebas. Sexual sin is like greed. There's no fulfilling it. There's no satisfying it. A poor man wants many things, but a greedy man wants everything. David wants everything. He wanted something new, something different, something more. Not just this Bathsheba, but all of the Bathshebas. You see, David had wives. He had many wives. None of them were enough. One more was not going to be enough. David was destroying his own life but then as parents are supposed to do, David taught his son, but he taught him very poorly. David taught his son that one woman is not enough. One wife is not enough for you, son. And so like many sons do, David's son Solomon said, I'll take that advice and multiply it. And for himself, Solomon took 700 wives, one after another, because the last one was never going to be enough. Because if one is not enough to satisfy sexual sin, 700 won't be either. If you are single, God wants your contentment to be in no sexual contact. If you are married, God wants your contentment to be with one spouse and no others. See, if we are not content, we will be like David. 
looking for Bathsheba. David saw her on the roof, a place that he was not supposed to be, with eyes that he was not supposed to have, with a heart that already desired wickedness and actions that proved he was already sinful in his mind and in his heart. And we can find Bathsheba just about anywhere. Bathsheba is easier for us to find today than it is any other time in human history. We can find Bathsheba at your workplace. You can find Bathsheba at the gym. You can find Bathsheba at a Bible study. You can find Bathsheba in your pocket. Sexual sin is never content. For David, it started with a look that lingered just a little too long and a heart that desired something that it should not desire. And I know there are people that sit here today with a heart that desires something it should not desire. A young woman desiring for men to look at her, to notice her, to see her, to think about her. Men sitting here today thinking about pornography, not recognizing like David, it's a landmine that's waiting to blow up in your face, waiting to destroy your marriage. You know, part of the problem with pornography is that it tells you that you should be looking for something fake, that you should look for something that doesn't really exist. And it tells your wife that she'll never be enough for you because she's a real person and what you're looking at is fake. And you corrupt your own heart saying, I want the fake and the real sits right beside you. A heart that desires their spouse to be like someone else. Sexual sin promises contentment that it can never provide. It promises satisfaction but creates scandal. It promises pleasure but robs your spouse and robs your marriage bed. Sexual sin is a black hole. It's always taking, always wanting more, never giving, never satisfied. It's never content. And I know I'm beating you up about this. If you've been there on either side of it, you're repentant, your spouse is repentant. As an individual, if you are repentant before the Lord, I want you to hear these words from David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. All of these things come to the pinnacle of David's life. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in repentance, David writes Psalm 51, his prayer of repentance to the Lord, in which he says, 
for I am conscious of my own rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Admitting his sin, David knows that there are consequences. But he chooses to have the consequences and repent instead of having the consequences and being unrepentant. Verse 6, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. David knows that his sin lacked integrity. It started in the inner self. It started in David's heart well before Bathsheba. David's sin had already been rotting him from the inside out. And David knew what Jesus says. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51, You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. God sweeps away David's sacrifices, his offerings. God doesn't want David's tokens of repentance. He wants a broken, contrite heart. If you find yourself like David today, repent of your sins. Find accountability. Be honest with those that you need to be honest with. And then take steps to remove your sin. It is better, verse 29, that if your right eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your finger causes you to sin, cut it off. If your hand causes you to grab sin, cut it off. If your foot takes you somewhere to sin, cut it off. If your elbow causes you to bring sin to your mouth, cut it off. If your shoulder reaches for sin to grab it, cut it off. If your lungs and your mouth produce words of sin, cut them out. It's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole thing to be thrown into hell. You see, Jesus' example here goes to the most extreme lengths and is ridiculous to show us that we should go to the most extreme lengths, however ridiculous, to put away sexual sin. Jesus is literally saying to cut parts of your body off. That would be better than to have sinfully sexual thoughts. It's extreme and it's graphic to prove that sexual sin is extreme and it's graphic. Right before this chapter that we're in in Matthew 5, Jesus is tempted in Matthew chapter 4. He's hungry and he's out in the wilderness and Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him with bread. 
And Jesus doesn't stop and smell and savor the bread. He doesn't touch the bread and see if it's good. Jesus quotes the Bible. He quotes the word of God and turns away from temptation. Then Satan tempts Jesus with God's power. Will God truly save you? And so Satan and Jesus are at the very top of the temple and Satan says, just toss yourself off. Jesus, come on, God will save you, won't he? And Jesus quotes the word of God again, knowing that he doesn't need to test God to see if God is real or God is true. And Jesus rejects the temptation. And a third time, Satan comes to Jesus and shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and says to Jesus, all of this can be yours. And Jesus doesn't stop and stare at him. He doesn't look and long for all the kingdoms of the world. And he doesn't desire that which he doesn't have. He quotes the word of God and rejects the temptation. Remembering the words of God, quoting the words of God, using the word of God to reject temptation is what Jesus does. When temptation knocks at Jesus' door, nobody here wants any of that. He doesn't invite temptation in to give him his pitch. He doesn't stand there long enough to go back and forth, is this what I want or should I not want this? He doesn't listen to temptation to decide if that's a good course of action. He doesn't argue or discuss it, or rationalize it, or to see if it sounds reasonable. He shuts the door and locks it so temptation goes away. He cuts temptation off before it begins, and he walks away from it, quoting the word of God. Now, I told you about David and his failures I want to contrast that with Joseph and his success in this arena. Joseph is found in Genesis 39. This part of the story is a couple differences. One significant is that David went looking for his temptation. Joseph's temptation threw itself at him. Joseph was a man who loved the Lord. He lived an upright life. He did the right things. Everything Joseph touched turned to proverbial gold. He worked in his boss's house, and his boss trusted him with absolutely everything. Joseph could do anything he wanted, and his boss would trust him to do it. And then temptation knocked at his door. Temptation tried to seduce Joseph by saying, Hey, Joseph, my husband's not here right now. Sleep with me. She did not mean sleep with him. But Joseph shut the door on temptation and said, your husband trusts me with everything except you. Why would I hurt him and sin against God? That makes sense. So Joseph walks away from the temptation. But as temptation always does, it came back and knocked on the door again and again and again. Day after day, temptation 
came to Joseph and said, my husband's not home. One day Joseph gets to work having rejected temptation day after day after day. And Joseph walks into work into his boss's house and it's quiet. He looks down the hallway. The servants aren't there. Nobody's in the kitchen. Normally everybody's around, but today was eerily quiet and it doesn't make sense to Joseph. This is not normal. And then temptation knocks. And this time, temptation says, I sent out all of the servants. Nobody's here. It's just you and I. Joseph rejected that temptation. But temptation grabbed him by the coat and said, sleep with me. And so Joseph wiggled out of his coat, and she was standing there holding the coat, and Joseph ran. He fled temptation, leaving his coat behind. So temptation, being embarrassed and angry and vindictive, she screams for the servants to come in, and she holds Joseph's coat, saying, Joseph tried to make sport of me. Joseph tried to sleep with me. And then laid Joseph's coat on her husband's bed. And when he came home, he was angry. He was angry about the lie that his wife told. So Joseph, having done the right thing, is now thrown into prison, accused of trying to rape his boss's wife, and Joseph sits in an Egyptian cell for who knows how many years. But you see, for Joseph, just like Jesus is teaching, better to sit in a cell than to be thrown into hell. Better to cut out an eye, to cut off an arm, than to be led into temptation. See, for us, when temptation knocks, we need not think that we are stronger than the temptation. We need to rely on the Lord to save us from the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, our minds need to be prepared No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. God will provide a way out. This verse is a great verse to memorize. When tempted, I need to remember that this is normal that this is common temptation, but God is faithful. What I'm feeling, normal, bad temptation, but God is faithful and will make a way of escape. God will provide a way out. Colossians 3, set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. David's was focused on earthly things, the pleasures of the palace instead of having to go into war the pleasures of his desires rather than the rejection of his carnal nature, to set our minds on things above and not on what is below. The things below, the things on earth are temporary. The things above are eternal. First Peter, therefore, with your minds ready for action, that's something that's already happening, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. To be sober-minded, to set our hope on earthly things, to not give in to the desires of our former ignorance. Before we knew the Lord, we gave in to all of our desires of our former ignorance. But no longer. Now we're called to be holy as God is holy. Sexual sin is tragedy. It hurts everyone involved. But like all sin, there is hope. There is hope for the repentant. There is hope for the one that says, I have messed up. I've done the wrong things. Will you forgive me? There's healing both from the Lord and from others. If you have been engaged in some sort of sexual sin and you're married, you need to tell your spouse. You have to tell your spouse. You need accountability. You need counseling. You need something, but it has to start with honesty and repentance. If this is a situation that you need help with, call me, text me. If you're a woman, call or text my wife. Call the office, get our number. You don't have to tell everyone, but you do need to tell someone. You do need to talk about this. And let me tell you what you'll find. You won't find condemnation. You won't find I told you so's. What you'll find is grace. Because I'm a sinner too. I'm no different than you. I'm no better than you. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. You'll find grace. You'll find forgiveness. You'll find love. You'll find hope to overcome your sin. But you'll also find accountability. That it needs to be put to death. That our sin must be something that was of our former nature. And today we move forward in the nature of Christ. Can't stay in your sin. This isn't in your notes, but I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 61 real quick. Isaiah 61, this is a passage that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Jesus takes this passage and says, it's about me. He says that he has been sent, that he has been anointed to bring good news to the poor. If you don't know the good news of Jesus Christ, your sins, the things that you've done wrong can be forgiven by him. 
that you don't have to bear the whole punishment of your sin because Christ has already borne your punishment on the cross. Jesus says that he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom from the prisoners. Sexual sin is captivity. It's a prison. And Jesus came that we might have liberty, that he might set the captives free, that he might give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. You know, this is something that my parents dealt with for many years early in their marriage. It was all ashes for years, burned all the way to the ground over and over and over. But through the Lord, through the forgiveness of one another, the forgiveness of Christ, gave them a crown of beauty. They were able, having gone through the ashes, they were able to tell other people, still sitting in the ashes, you can make it out of this. The ashes can be turned to beauty, but it's only through Jesus. The band is going to come up. Come on up, guys. They're going to sing a song, Give Me Jesus. And I want you to think about this. When we look at David and the destruction of his family, and when we compare that with Joseph, David had it all. And Joseph sat in a prison. Having it all does not bring contentment. Contentment in life and in marriage only comes from letting go of the search for a better one and being content with Jesus. Today I've set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity, Joseph chose life and prosperity. David chose death and adversity. We're going to have prayer partners up here and praying with other people, it's important. Praying with somebody else isn't an admission of guilt. It's a recognition that you can't do it on your own. Not just in this area, but all areas of life. We need one another. We can't fulfill the commands of Jesus without one another. Prayer together is one of the many ways that we can do that. So my encouragement to you is come up and pray with one of the prayer partners, which expresses not your guilt, but it expresses your dependence on God. Let's pray. Lord, you are the one that will bring contentment. You are the one to whom we can trust all of our life. Lord, we ask that we would be people that recognize that we cannot do this on our own. Sin is always knocking and always right around the corner. The temptation comes upon us when we least expect it. But Lord, you are our rock. Lord, you are the mighty fortress. You are where we plant our flag of hope and say, I will not be shaken. Lord, the world promises everything. 
like Satan to your son. It promises all the kingdoms of the world. And Lord, we want none of that. We ask that you would give us Jesus and give us Jesus alone for now until the day that we come to die. Give me Jesus.